This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. My name is Sam Caston-Smith, and I will be your host today. Joining me today is Will Bushman. Hey. I just threw you off because you were waiting for Director of Student Ministries, but I... Yeah, usually I'm... I just realized I haven't been saying my title. Why have I been given your title? We shouldn't have titles. Everybody knows who you are. Yeah, it's... it's, And it doesn't... Does my title help you in this? No. Not really. My title doesn't mean anything either. Doesn't give you much. (laughs) So... Anyway, we're walking through a commentary on the life of, of Joseph and his brothers and this family that has been wildly dysfunctional up until this point. We're going to see a little bit more of that dysfunction uh, today, but we get how God is using all of the dysfunction to actually weave together something that's beautiful. All right, so in our last episode, we closed with the brothers having gone from Egypt back home and they're confronting Jacob. And so just to give you some context for how this all came about, uh, the brothers sold Joseph into Egypt. He ascended into power, predicted Pharaoh's dreams, said there's going to be seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. So they've stored up all this grain. Then a massive famine hits the world. And Joseph is sitting there in his, you know, spot. He's selling grain to all these foreigners that are pouring in. He's looking, waiting to see when is his family going to show up. And Jacob had said to his 10 older sons, which he treats basically like servants. They don't even qualify as sons. He doesn't, he doesn't seem to like them much. And so he says, you guys get out of here. You go get grain. I'm not allowing you to take Benjamin because he's too precious to me. They all go down to Egypt, and if you remember in the last episode, Joseph engineers a situation that basically makes them walk through what Joseph has been through. They come the long way from Canaan down to Egypt, just like Joseph had made the long journey to go see his brothers. Then Joseph accuses them and says, you're only here because you're spies. Well, that's what the brothers were thinking. Joseph's coming to bring another bad report about us. Then we're told that Joseph takes his brothers and puts them into a pit, a dungeon. It's the same exact Hebrew word for cistern, which is what they threw Joseph into. Then he engineers a story where one of the brothers, Simeon, is left behind in the dungeon, and he sends the nine brothers back to Jacob, and he fills their bags with silver again, and he says, not unless you bring Benjamin back to me will your brother be released? And so now you have a brother who is forsaken in Egypt, and the other brothers go back home with silver in their pockets to tell dad that one of the brothers has been lost. And so it's recreating the whole story of Joseph up to this point. They get home, and they're like, hey, dad, you know, sorry, Simeon's out. (laughs) You know, we, we lost another one. Uh, but we can get him back if you'll allow us to take Benjamin back down to Egypt. And so Jacob is looking at a year's worth of grain that Joseph sent the brothers with, and he's like, you know, bad luck got Simeon. 
you know, I you really, we're because we're not going back to get him. You're not getting Benjamin. And so, you know, we'll just let Simeon sit in a prison for this year. Well, the problem is they run out of grain again. They only got a year's supply. And so at the end of that year, Jacob's like, oh, we're on the brink of starvation again. Why don't you go back down to Egypt? Judah steps up and says, no. Like, if we go back down there, he's going to kill us. So you've got an option. You can either give us Benjamin and we go back down to Egypt and get more grain, or you don't give us Benjamin, but we're not going down to Egypt or we'll be killed. And so finally, Jacob's like, my God goodness, you know, here, take Ben, everyone's going to die if we don't do this. So here, take Benjamin, take a ton of money, take a ton of gifts to go back to this Egyptian official that they don't realize is Joseph. And we'll, we'll try to bribe some kindness out of this guy. So right now, if you're the brothers, remember when they're on the way back and they, they see in their sacks that the Egyptians had put the silver back in them. Well, they don't know that. They're just thinking, oh, my goodness, did we forget to pay? I could have sworn we paid for this grain. Well, now you have to go back, and if you're one of the brothers, you're thinking they're going to call us to the carpet for stealing this grain. How are you feeling about that, Will? I'm going in disguise. <laughs> I'm just hoping the years pass. And, I mean, they don't know it's Joseph, so they don't know the brotherly bond that knows them. Hopefully some Egyptian official has just forgotten. But, yeah, you're not going back there very confidently. And, and they take double the money. So but I you got to get Simeon, right? So you can't be... I don't know. I'm you can't kidding. go in two disguise. I mean, unless you're just going for the grain and Simeon can Simeon's just... out. <laughs> but really, like you're going back and it's you've not only been accused of being spies as an enemy of the state, but now you're, you've stolen from Egypt. And also, don't you think Joseph's directive to bring Benjamin back is, should have happened quicker than a year? Yeah. Like he's oh, probably sure. thinking you need to go home and come back right away. For sure. So now that they've been gone a year, you have to think it's probably a little more mad than he was a yeah. year ago. And if you remember, the Egyptian official has said, you know, if you if you come back here without Benjamin, you're gonna I'm gonna kill you. Like you're gonna die. And so, well, what would you be thinking he's done with Simeon if a full year's gone by and the brothers never came back? Like, why am I gonna keep feeding this guy in a dungeon? Yeah, you're you know, in the midst of a famine. So they have to be wondering: Is he even going to be alive? You know, like this is how broken this family is. I mean, it's so anyway, they, they come back down there. They, they come up to Joseph with all of the gifts and everything else. We're starting today in Genesis 43, where we left off at verse 16. So they, they show up with everything else and they say, when Joseph saw Benjamin with him, he said to the steward of his house, take these men to my house, slaughter an animal and prepare dinner. They are to eat with me at noon. And there's, there's something to this that, that fits very much the prodigal son kind of a, a formula that when you see somebody that you thought was dead and you see them alive again, you throw a great feast. And that is in the heart of God. You see it all over the, time, all over the place where when somebody that has been lost, somebody that was forsaken is all of a sudden shows up again in their life, you know a feast is coming. That it's all over the Bible, and you see it here when Joseph sees his younger brother Benjamin, and he's actually alive. Like this, this is a surprise. He's overjoyed, and it's time to have a massive feast and to slaughter the fatted calf. I mean, that's what's going on here. And so it said, verse seventeen: the man did as Joseph told him, and he took the men to Joseph's house. So you got the steward who's taking these nine older brothers around into Joseph's 
palace, and it says, Now the men were frightened when they were taken to this house, which you can imagine. Understandably. <laughs> like, all these people coming to buy grain, right? First time, you're shocked that you get confronted and called spies. Like, whoa, he just singled us out. And remember, all of Joseph's brothers are thinking, they're not thinking, they know they don't know it's Joseph. They're thinking all of these circumstances have happened because who is noticing? God, God, this is all engineered by God. We're being singled out. All of this, it, all the similarities, everything about this, it's just obvious that God, this is an omen from God that he has seen our wickedness and now we're facing the consequences for this. And so the first time it, they're, they're singled out and called spies, but this time of all the thousands of people that are still coming into the land, now they're like, I would like to invite you personally. And to my, remember me, the guy who told you that I was going to kill you and I threw you in a dungeon. Well, now I'd like to have you over for a meal <laughs> because you brought this younger brother with you. It's all bizarre. They have to be thinking, what in the world is going on? Yeah, and I doubt the steward was like, hey, come have lunch with us. I'm sure he's just like, you guys, come with me. <laughs> like, it's yeah. not probably not much information is given because, you know, if the steward was like, hey, I would love... You know, the master would love to have you for a meal. You wouldn't be afraid about that. Yeah. You'd be overjoyed. But the fact that they're afraid, they're they're mixing some communication signals. Yeah, and they say that right in this this next verse. It says they were frightened when they were taken to the house because they're thinking we were brought here because of the silver that was put back into our sacks the first time. Like he's taking us into this place in secret and some really bad things are going to happen to us because, you know, it says he wants to attack us and overpower us and seize us as slaves and take our donkeys. <laughs> Which is just... I like that addition. <laughs> they're really worried about their donkeys, you know, and all this. They're like, Phew. but, you know, like that shows you the difference in the brothers, because think about like they're they're worried that the donkeys are going to be taken. But Simeon's been sitting there for a year, right? <laughs> you know, we'll sell our brother Joseph into slavery to Egypt but now they're concerned about their donkeys and it's hinting to you that there has been a heart change in them. You know, they're concerned for one another. They're concerned for their donkeys, which, you know, like whatever. Yeah. I mean, really like you should be concerned about Simeon. They haven't said anything about Simeon yet. So verse 19, it says, so they went up to Joseph Stewart, this guy that's leading them around everywhere and spoke to him at the entrance of the house. And so they're they're like, we're about to be killed or enslaved or something because we stole, they think that we stole the money. So here comes the begging. Please, sir, they said. We came down here the first time to buy food. But at the place where we stopped for the night, we opened our sacks and each of us found his silver, the exact weight in the mouth of his sack. So we've brought it back with us. We've also brought additional silver with us to buy food. We don't know who put the silver into our sacks. And so at this point, when they discovered the silver the first time, what should they have done? Turned right around. But what was the, the complicating fact with that is that they Joseph said, yeah. if you come back before me without Benjamin, you see how Joseph has so brilliantly sealed this whole thing up to engineer this? They can't go back because they'll be put to death if they turn around and go back without Benjamin. So now they've had to sit for a year wondering, does Egypt think we stole from them? You know, this is not going to go well. And then there's another surprise year of famine. We've got to go back to Egypt. They're going to be convinced that we're thieves. And so when they say, we don't know who put this into our sack, now listen to what the attendant, who has been coached by Joseph, no doubt, says to them. The attendant says, it's all right. 
don't be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, is given the treasure in your sacks. I received your silver. Then he brought Simeon out to them. So if you're the brothers, what's going on in your head right now? It's tracking the way you think it is, at least. Like that if you presuppose that this is God doing all of it, then this is a good thing for God to be doing. So you're kind of relaxing a little bit at this moment. Yeah, but everything feels like it's miraculous or it's some kind of an omen. Mm-hmm. What do you, how in the world did they get the silver? It's still in our bags. Like none of this makes sense. Why would, why would this happen? What is God doing? And, and Joseph, I'll, I'm going to ask you this. Joseph is engineering. He's being deceptive, right? Yeah. yeah I mean, he's, he's, he's brilliant in this, and he's leading the brothers into a way where he can test their hearts and give them the best opportunity at redemption and repentance, and he's being patient through all of this. But is, is this the right way to go? Like, let me ask you this. If, if I think to myself, the best opportunity for my son, you know, whichever one, my son, Nathan, you know, he's five. <laughs> the best opportunity that for my son, Nathan, to come to faith is to go through this struggle. You know, is it ethical to impose the struggle on Nathan so that he comes to faith? when I'm engineering it, right? So all the brothers are sitting there going, oh my gosh, God is on the move. God is on the move. God is on the move. And in reality, God is on the move, mm-hmm. but it's working as the spirit flowing through Joseph. Is that okay or is that unethical? What do I think? Yeah, I'm trying to get you in trouble before ordination. <laughs> <laughs> I, I understand why Joseph's doing it, but I don't think it's right. Okay, why not? I don't I don't see where deception's ever praised really by God. Yeah. I mean there's times where people are praised who have deceived. And that's God working through like you think Rahab at Jericho. Yeah. Or there's the the Hebrew midwives who say, "Oh, the Hebrew women, they give birth too fast." Where they lie to Pharaoh to save lives and then God honors them. Mhm. He doesn't honor the lie, he honors the people. Yeah. Who did noble things through? But in this scenario, Joseph's his brothers have already had a heart change. He's yeah. testing that heart change, which I think is the that's wrong true. part. Yeah, that's true. If there's people, if anyone came to me right now and said, "Hey, I have a broken relationship with my family," would I say to go about it like this? No. <laughs> so I think for yeah. me, that test kind of like I get the Rahab. That's military stuff. I think that also is a little category in and of itself i don't know what to do with that the hebrew midwives were honoring god not pharaoh yeah so that's when a government comes and says you should you know disobey god and god obviously is the ultimate authority over your government whereas this one doesn't track with any of those caveats i think yeah it's when he allow and he's engineering them to think that god is doing something yeah unless god comes to you and says do this for you to stand in and make someone else think that God is doing something that God might not be doing, you know, is dangerous. You never want to be the mouthpiece of God, an engineer or manipulate people to think that God is doing something unless God has told you <laughs> to do that. You know, it runs the danger of where you see, you know, some of the revival festivals where they do things that are manipulating people's emotions or you About see God. Yeah, totally. Or you see the same person who's, you know, giving their life every Thursday at the latest, you know, worship concert because they were kind of manipulated into that. Like there's always danger. And, you know, you can you can err on the other side where you 
never do anything and allow yeah. God to move through your actions or the actions of well, ministry. Well, everything's not God. You know, yeah, like everything's just circumstantial. Yeah, yeah. Or God doesn't move anymore. You know, we put him in a box and nothing can happen. But I just think that it's fascinating to watch Joseph so masterfully make the brothers think this is all God. And in reality, it is God yeah. working through Joseph. I think I would have been, I think there's wisdom in what Joseph's doing if he revealed himself at the beginning. Hmm. But then they wouldn't have received it. Really? You think so? No way. No. Like the, they, right now they are on pens and needles, like, but not, they're because not of an on, odd fear of God. They're, they're wrestling with God, not Joseph. The moment that mm. Joseph, in this story, the moment that Joseph says, hey guys, it's me, what's the brother's reaction? They're all terrified, like, is he going to kill us? Spoiler. Is he going to kill us? Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I just, yeah, I just totally ruined that story. <laughs> well, hopefully that's not a big surprise. Like, But anyway, right now Joseph wants them to be wrestling with God because he knows that's going to be the, the true change of heart. That That's where it has to happen first. They have to wrestle with their own wickedness before a holy God. So you're cool with this? I think it's brilliant. <laughs> I think it's brilliant, but if I heard that a pastor at our church was doing this to somebody, I'd be t- telling the session. You know? Yeah, <laughs> like I wouldn't be cool with it now, but Joseph, and this day and age, like I, it is masterful, and it's an oddly specific set of circumstances. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you add all of this up, mm-hmm. like it's a hard modern day context. But like you were sold into slavery by your brothers, and right, spent yeah. years being accused of sexual assault and you were in prison and then people forgot you because you could interpret dreams and then <laughs> you rose and you kind of saved the world as you know it in this moment and then mm. all of a sudden your brothers are back on your doorstep like man maybe if modern day if all that aligned up yeah. i'd be like go for it yeah he does come clean in the end so he doesn't allow the deception to to sit you know he he does come clean but one of the things that he doesn't do it's like we talked about this in the last episode you know, Joseph's options, like if I'm thinking through what what is what are the options when your brothers show up after years and years and years and years where they've have betrayed you, it's either, you know, you send the guards to slaughter them or to imprison them and you just show wrath or you, you know, naively run to them and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad to see you, you know, let's be friends now where you don't know where their heart is. Joseph is being super brilliant and, and ferreting out where their hearts are. That is, I guess the difficult part about scripture a lot of times that wisdom is such a necessary gift from the Holy spirit to interpret real life situations. Mm -hmm. Cause there are moments when the Bible's very explicit and just like give forgiveness kind of at all costs. Mm -hmm. And then there's moments where there's like, no, there's wisdom and reconciliation, things like that. So it is something that it's hard to just blanket statement, everything all the time. Mm Mm-hmm. But there's time, like as a pastor, one of the harder things that I've ever had to do, and we've, you know, this isn't something that often comes about, but if you have like a, for instance, a marriage that has gotten so toxic and it's, it's, you know, abuse or something like that, where it's like, okay, this has gotten to a point where when you guys are actually together under the same roof, you're making your marriage and your family worse. And so to do a structured separation, which is very, you know, it's dangerous to try that because it's, you know, it's another step toward divorce. But the hope behind stuff like that is, or if the husband is caught cheating, you know, you you put him out of the house for a season, 
And the goal behind that is not to say, oh, you're, here's the punishment for your sin. You know, go, go be ashamed all by yourself for a while. But it's, it's to have that time where you can really wrestle with God and, and to see what the consequences of your sin are and how you have wounded other people. And that time where you're required and kind of forced on your own to wrestle with God will do one of two things. It's either going to harden you in a particular direction and you're going to ignore everybody who's calling you to soften mm. or it's going to crush you under the weight and it's going to call you to authentic repentance and reconciliation with those that you've betrayed. And so as pastors, there are times where you don't lie to the person and yeah. organize a situation, you know, to where they're like, Oh my gosh, I'm a cheat and a terrible person. But you do kind of make them say, man, my actions are not, in alignment with what God would have me do. I need to change. I need to apologize. I need to soften. I need to break for the sake of my marriage or family or whatever the case might be. And I think Joseph has done a masterful job at bringing his brothers to that point. Yeah, that is very true. So anyway, the steward at Joseph's instruction is like, oh no, God, God put that money back into your sack, which of course just compounds what they've already been thinking. Like this, this is just really bizarre. Uh, verse 24 says, the steward took the men into Joseph's house, gave them water to wash their feet and provided fodder for their donkeys. He's taking don- care of the donkeys. I'm telling you, the donkeys are, are living large. They're special donkeys. Verse 25 they prepared their gifts for Joseph's arrival at noon because they had heard that they were to eat there. Verse 26, it said, Joseph came home. They presented him the gifts that they had brought into the house. Remember, they've got like all kinds of food and pistachios and special things from the land of Canaan that they're bringing. They brought double the amount of silver. They're there to make a good impression and to make sure that Benjamin gets back home. All this is coming from the bounties of Jacob. And it says, he asked him how they were, and then he said, how is your aged father you told me about? Is he still living? And they replied, oh, your servant, our father, is still alive and well. Do you think that was to test if Jacob's actually allowing Benjamin out of his sight? Maybe. I think obviously it's concern for Joseph's father because he loves him. But also, as you're reading it now, I'm thinking, oh, this is almost another test. Like, Man, did Jacob really relinquish his son into these guys' care finally? Yeah. If, see, if I'm Joseph right now, I know. Remember Joseph, like the only protection he had was dad. And yeah. the moment he was away from dad, the brothers you know, betrayed him and sold him off into slavery. So if I'm Joseph and I have a, a chance with Benjamin near me and I can keep him safe with all of my power and I don't trust my brothers to treat him well— the only thing I'm thinking, if I send Benjamin actually to go back with you back home, I can't trust that he'll be safe. And so I want to know, is his only protection still alive? If I'm going to send yeah. him back with you, I want to know that Jacob's alive. And so he's, you know, it's like he's making small talk, but Joseph is brilliant, man. He's What he wants to know is, is it even an option for me to send Benjamin back with you? Because if they just said, no, you know what, our dad died. If I'm Joseph, I'm thinking, no way am I trusted because Benjamin is probably going to be, you know, the one who receives the blessing, who receives the promise, who receives the inheritance or whatever the case might be. No way am I going to trust him back to you. No way. And not if, not if Jacob is dead. So, but they all reply, your servant, our father still alive and well, and they bowed low to pay him honor. And here we go again. You know, the second dream 
bam, here we go. Two dreams of bowing, and now we have two instances where they bow low to pay him honor. As he looked about and saw his brother Benjamin, his own mother's son, he asked, is, is this your youngest brother, the one you've, you've told me about? Now remember, he's, he's betrayed at 17. Benjamin's going to be a little guy when, when he's betrayed. And, you know, seeing him as an adult in his 20s or early 30s, probably, he wouldn't recognize him. You know, he didn't get the chance to grow up with him. And so when he sees him, he's like, is, is this your youngest brother, the one you've told me about? And he said, oh, God, be gracious to you, my son. And deeply moved at the sight of his brother, Joseph hurried out and looked for a place to weep. He went into his private room and he wept there. So you got to imagine like Joseph is, has been through the ringer emotionally wondering for 20 years how God is ultimately going to bring this, the dreams to fruition and being reunited with his family, amazed that he's still alive, just grateful, overwhelmed with emotion. And he's weeping. This family's always weeping, um, which I appreciate because it makes it very real. And so after he washed his face, you know, he's been crying, so his face is all red and splotchy and everything else. So he washes his face, and he comes out, and he's controlling himself. I love how it has to tell us that. Like, he's on the verge of melting down. He is an emotional mess, and he's having to control himself. And he said, serve the food. So they served, and this is interesting. It says they served him by himself. So you got to imagine there's all these tables at this place. They served Joseph all by himself. They served the brothers by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with them by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat with Hebrews. It was detestable, disgusting to the Egyptians. So, And notice, Joseph is not at the table of the Egyptians. because hmm. He gets his own table. Egyptian. Yeah, he's a different form almost. So even though he's the prime minister, it's still something that's like like almost the dietary law of the Hebrews for the Egyptians. It's like, you cannot eat with a foreigner. So even though Joseph has power, they're still prohibited from eating with them. He's still not one of them. And which is fascinating, but, it, but the brothers are, you know, they had to be thinking, I wonder why he's not eating with the Egyptians, yeah. you know, or maybe they don't wonder. And they just think, all right, he, he likes being alone, <laughs> you know, over there at his own table. He's like Ryan Brasington. He's, he's just the, in charge. The introvert, yeah. Right. And I think it's interesting because the Old Testament, like the Hebrew people really get ripped apart for, you know, all the ceremonial laws and all God setting his nation apart and not, you know, intermarry and even go as far as this. But you see, like, very common culturally back then. Yeah. Or even the Egyptians be like, no, we don't want the Hebrews. It's not, it's, it's them, not us. Yeah. So I listened to a, an interesting commentary not long ago on this passage. And I might be butchering exactly how they put it, but this is essentially what they were saying. That this was so critically important to protecting the story of redemption because this was before the law of Moses. So they're not set apart. They don't have the dietary laws and all the different things that really, really sets them apart. I mean, they had circumcision and a relationship with God, and that's about all they had before Moses comes along. So all during that time of slavery, you have all of these Hebrews everywhere, but they're they're a homogenous group. They don't intermingle with the Egyptians. They don't they don't breed with the Egyptians. Why not? 
Well, because the Egyptians saw any kind of intermingling with other races as something that was utterly disgusting, right? It was detestable in the sights of their in the sight of their gods. And so the only thing that allowed the Hebrew people to stay homogenous was not the Hebrew law. We didn't have it yet. It was the Egyptian law that says we can have nothing to do with the Hebrews that kept them from intermarrying, from having children, and from you know, just the Hebrews assimilating into Egyptian culture. No, they kept their own culture because the Egyptians kept them at arm's length all the time. And so Mm. another piece of God's sovereignty in the story is all the the mistreatment that the Hebrews had and failure to being assimilated, or for Joseph for that matter. You know, it's, it's just interesting. Even for him to have a wife from an Egyptian priest is, is fascinating how that happens. You know, we won't eat with you. But we'll give you our daughter. But by and large, this was the reality in in the ancient world. Verse 33, it says, The men had been seated before him in order of their ages. Now, I want you to imagine that. So so all of these divine coincidences are happening, right? And now all of a sudden, Joseph looks at you. He doesn't know you. It's not like you presented him your birth certificates or your driver's licenses. And he goes, okay, first we'll be Reuben. Next will be Simeon. Next will be Levi. Next will be Judah. And he just starts going down the line and, and he nails it according to age. The odds of that are like one in some crazy number of millions that he's going to get the order right. And it's like, oh my goodness, God is like all over this man. Like there's something going on here. There's a supernatural awareness of what how this is going. And so they're looking at each other in total astonishment. Like from start to finish, they are like, God is all over this. This is This is stunning. He sees everything here. When the portions were served to them from Joseph's table, Benjamin's portion was five times as much as everyone else's. So they feasted and drank freely with him. Now, let me ask you this. Why do you think Joseph would give Benjamin five times as much as everyone else? I don't know. To show that he knows him and the favoritism that he has. Why, Why is Joseph in Egypt to start with? Because the brothers could not handle the rage they felt toward one of their own getting favoritism. And so it's like, how do you handle when Benjamin has shown favoritism? You know, are you going to, are you going to get upset? Are you going to, you know, are they going to, are they going to frown? Are they going to be upset? And so he, everything he's doing is very, very deliberate. So it's not only a show, Hey, I love my brother, Benjamin, and I'm so excited. I haven't seen him in 20 years, but it's also like, how do, you, how do you do when I show favoritism? How's this going to work out? So the feast is going on. Joseph, start of chapter 44, it says, Now Joseph gave these instructions to the steward of the house. This guy's going behind the scenes and engineering all this stuff. Steward of the house has a lot of work yeah. to do. He, you know, it's like he's running a prank show or something. Yeah. <laughs> How's this going to play? And Joseph says, Fill the men's sacks with as much food as they can carry. Put each man's silver in the mouth of their sack. So it's like, oh, here we go again. Then put my cup, the silver one, in the mouth of the youngest one's sack, along with the silver for his grain. And he did as Joseph said. As morning dawned, the men were on their way with their donkeys. I'm thinking after the last time I'm checking my sack. (laughs) Right? So they're on their way with their donkeys. There's the donkeys again. And they had not gone far from the city when Joseph said to a steward, All right, now go after the men at once, and when you catch up with them, I want you to say to them, why have you repaid good with evil? Isn't this the cup my master drinks from and also uses for divination 
this is a wicked thing you have done. So we go from partying and celebrating to now it's a roller coaster. This is the highest the temperature has been. And you got to imagine their nerves, like you just said, this has been a roller coaster. Their nerves are totally shot. Like they thought we're home free. We got Benjamin. We've got the grain. We've got our brother Simeon. We made it. We're escaping. Hooray. You know, you see the finish line, roll the credits. Then when he caught up with them, so here comes the steward. He repeated those words to them, but they said to him, why does my Lord say such things? Far be it from your servants to do anything like that. We even brought back to you from the land of Canaan, the silver we found inside the mouths of our sacks. So why would we steal silver or gold from your master's house? If any of your servants is found to have it, he'll die. We, like you can take him, put him to death. The rest of us will become my Lord's slaves. And so like, this is like, they're like, there's no chance any of us took this. This is a false charge. Look inside all of our bags. If it's found, like put that one to death and the rest of us will be your slaves. They're, they're talking big game here. Yeah. Quite the, quite the claim to make when, like you said, no checking on anything. Yeah. And and after like the last year plus all these weird things that keep happening, like I'm not making that claim. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and you'd feel without, like you'd be checking over checking everything. Yeah, you'd yeah. be double because you'd be like, someone's out to get me. I don't know if it's God. I don't know who it is, but like, I got to start to look a little harder at all this. Yeah, so so the, the steward says, very well then, let it be as you say. Whoever is found to have it will become my slave. The rest of you will be free from blame. So each of them quickly lowered a sack to the ground and opened it. And you can imagine they're all like, you know, defiantly triumphant. Like, here, fine, look. Look at mine. Then the steward proceeded to search, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest. And so here it is again. Like, he knows who these people are. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Mm. Like, you got to remember, like, this was Jacob's favorite son. Like, he sent him on one condition. Like, you have to bring him back under any circumstances. Like, he has to come back. I don't care so much if the rest of you come back, but he has to come back. And now all the brothers were like, kill the one you find it in, and it's in Benjamin's. And not just that. You don't want the cup to be found at all because you're also going into slavery. Yeah, you like, volunteered you're not, like, yourself. Jazzed, like. Yeah, that's wild. And so now it's like, oh, you were so close to escaping, and now, boom. And so at this, they tore their clothes. And so here's, they're losing their clothing. Here we go again. Like this is the last thing that, that Joseph gave up before he was thrown into slavery. Now their clothes are being destroyed, which is interesting. Are it's, they walking back naked here? Or we're not talking about, I mean, it's not like you're tearing them into smithereens. It's like you would take it by the neck and you would rip it open. And what that was is it's like, you know, you're, your coats were like super, super expensive. It's not just like they're trying to be Hulkamania and you know, ripping kind, the shirt yeah. off. It's like, I am so upset that I'm taking something really precious to me and I'm this upset. Like I'm, I'm ripping it open. So they tear their clothes and then they loaded all their donkeys and returned to the city. And Joseph was still in the house when Judah and his brothers came in and they threw themselves on the ground before him. And Joseph said to them, what is this you have done? Don't you know that a man like me can find things out by divination? So now Judah becomes the spokesperson for the whole family. 
he says, and this is, he's basically going to rehearse everything that they've been through. So I'm going to read this whole passage. And old Judah would have been bad for this, but we see yeah. Judah is maybe your best chance at this. Yeah. So you, and also remember from last episode, the only reason why Jacob allowed them to take Benjamin is because Judah said, I will pledge my own life for Benjamin. If I fail to take, bring him back, may the blame for it fall on me. So he's made that pledge to his father, and that's what kind of finally broke Jacob to say, okay, I'll send him. And so now Judah, true to his word, steps up and says, what can we say to my Lord? What what can we say? How, how can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. And so there it is. You know, it shows he has been wrestling not so much with Joseph, not with Egypt, not with all the circumstances, but he's been wrestling with God. He feels like all of this has come, and it's just God saying, hey, Judah, do you remember your wickedness? Do you, like, are you going to, to deal with that? Are you going to, to seek atonement and forgiveness for that and to recognize that you've caused a lot of pain? And so he's like, God has uncovered your servant's guilt, and we're we're now my Lord's slaves. We we ourselves and the one who was found to have the cup. And so Joseph pipes up, interrupts him, and says, Far be it from me to do such a thing. Only the man who was found to have the cup will become my slave. The rest of you go back to your father in peace. And so, like, if you're the brothers, worst case scenario. Worst case scenario, if you're righteous. Best case scenario, if you're the brothers of 20 years ago, when you're looking to get rid of Joseph and yeah, you're looking true. to get rid of Benjamin, now it's like you can go back. I mean, if you're if you're still the wicked brother, you can say, hey, hey, will you write a note to my dad that says he stole the cup? Like we didn't do it, we didn't engineer it, we didn't we didn't betray him. It was his own fault, and we get to get rid of Benjamin now. And all the the basically Jacob's only two beloved sons are gone, and now. We're, we're rid of them. And the old versions of them, we're going to go back and not care what their dad thought anyways. The correct. In their mind, they're like, let's get rid of Jacob next if they're still the evil brothers they were. Yeah, totally, absolutely true. None of the brothers cared about Jacob before this, but all of a sudden you find out that whatever change happened at, at, within Jacob through the grieving process of Joseph and Rachel has softened them, and now the brothers, even though they're still being mistreated, mm-hmm. even though Jacob still treats them as second-class sons, their heart is softened toward their dad. They've seen the grief that he has gone through. And so now Judah comes up to him and says, I mean, he's got a free ticket out of there. He's, he's free to go. But he goes to his it's Egyptian official, and he says, Please, my lord, let your servant speak a word to my lord. Do not be angry with your servant, though you are equal to Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servants, in other words, you asked us, do you have a father or a brother? And we answered, we have an aged father, and there's a young son born to him in his old age. His brother's dead, and he's the only one of his mother's sons left, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, and so it's like Judah is very boldly saying, hey, you asked us to do this, and we complied, and now you're going to hold us guilty? Like he says, you said to your servants, bring him down to me so I can see him for myself. And we said, the boy can't leave his father. If he leaves him, his father will die. But you 
told your servants, unless your younger brother comes down with you, you will not see my face again. And we went, we went back to your servant, my father. We told him what my Lord said. And then our father said, go back and buy a little more food. But we said, we can't go down. Only if the youngest brother's with us will we go. We can't see this man's face unless our younger brother's with us. Your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One of them went away from me. And I said, he has surely been torn to pieces, and I've not seen him since. If you take this one from me too, and harm comes to him, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in misery. Imagine being Joseph hearing that. Like you're hearing the heart of your father, right? It's the first time you've had any glimpse into this. You see brothers that prior to this were just totally callous and cruel and mean and saw you begging and pleading and weeping, and they didn't care. And now all of a sudden they care about their father. You hear that when your dad heard that you were gone, that he just, he's been miserable, that it's, it's a weight on him. He's, he's been in grief this whole time. He misses you. Judah continues, he says, So now if the boy is not with us, when I go back to your servant, my father, And if my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees that the boy isn't there, he'll die. Your servants will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant, me in other words, guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I don't bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. And you get what's going on here because it's really, it's an, it should just tug at your heart because what Judah is saying is, if I don't come back, my father's going to be okay. He won't be devastated if I don't come back. But he'll be crushed if Benjamin doesn't come back. And so recognizing that, I'm willing to lay down my life and give it to you in place of the one who's guilty so that he can go free. And what does that make you think? Jesus. It's totally Jesus. So here you have the wicked brother, who's the Judas character at the beginning, selling him into slavery and everything else for 30 pieces of silver or 20 pieces of silver, who's now saying, I will stand in the place of the wicked, the one who's guilty, so that he can go free, because that will thrill the heart of my father. And in this story, guess who you are? You're Benjamin, except you really are guilty. (laughs) You really do have the silver cup in your bag. And Judah, the lion of Judah, stands and says, I'm taking Will's guilt so that he can go free. Why? You know the primary reason why Jesus comes and dies for us? The number one motivation is not, I love Sam so much and I can't wait to spend the rest of eternity with Sam, though that is wildly true. The number one motivation of the son is to bring glory to the Father. The Father loves you so much that Judah, Jesus, is willing to say, I'll take the offense so that Benjamin, Sam and Will, can go back to the Father. That's how much the Father loves you. And that's a wild reality. And when Joseph sees that, and he sees, man, these guys are radically different, radically different. His heart is just more and more softened. And it says, now then, so Judah closes. 
He says, now then, please let me, your servant, remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come upon my father. And again, if you're Joseph, you're thinking, man, what must have been Jacob's response when he lost me? Yeah. That it wrecked all of these hard-hearted brothers to see it. Yeah, and it's wild to finally see the transformation of these guys. Because, mm-hmm. like, I mean, we've done in past episodes, we didn't hold, hold back any punches because these guys were gross, mm-hmm. and they were awful, and they were just really bad guys. Then all of a sudden you have Judah just like, I mean, if you read a couple chapters back, you'll be like, this is not the same character. This is a whole new guy. Yeah, totally different. Absolutely but, different. So I think it is a beautiful story of transformation that I don't think these guys get enough credit for because, you know, we love to focus on Joseph in this section of the text, and that's wonderful. Joseph is a great character to focus on, but here we have Judah being the Christ figure, which we talked about that 10 chapters ago. You'd be like, no chance. Yeah. Like, this guy could never become anything. Yeah. And so just the transformative power of, you know, God just working in these guys' life is just honestly astounding. It's a really interesting concept to think about modern day if we took you know these genocidal maniacs these rapists these like you know all of these things like the lowest rung of society and here we have them just going through quite the transformation and actually becoming the jesus figure i mean just gives you a lot more hope for people as we walk around and a lot more hope in the power of a gospel that's bigger than we can imagine but what you see here, like what it does in my heart is when you when you read these stories, it's like you're talking about, you're, you're reading, these guys are scoundrels. You know, you, you don't want them around your family. You want them gone. But the moment that you see that they're willing to lay down their lives for the brother, it makes me want to give them all a hug. Like immediately Judah's now my friend again. And all of the brothers that are willing and, and you know, to say we, we're, we're going to turn around, we're not leaving without, you know, Benjamin, you, you see why God does decorate the gates of heaven with these guys' names, you know, which is, which is a reality. And what does it mean? It means that nobody's ever too far gone, but the key to this is to wrestle with God, and that's what Joseph realized. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he knew if, he, if he'd have come out of the gates and says, look at me, I have all the power now, and ha, see, you bowed to me, and I have the power of life and death over you, I compel you to do the right thing guess what would have happened? They may have done the right thing. They may have done the right thing to get some grain. They may have done the right thing not to go into a dungeon or to be killed. But if you're only doing the right thing just to avoid punishment, it'll only take you so far. Mm. Now here, Joseph has taken them to a point where doing the right thing actually costs them something. They could have gotten away scot-free. They could have walked away with grain and silver and wealth from the hand of Joseph. They could have had it all. But to do the right thing means that you have to lay your life down at great cost. And he sees that Judah is willing to do that. And that's authentic transformation. And what drove it? It wasn't Joseph saying, I'm going to destroy you, Judah. It was Judah looking at the heart of his father going, out of love, saying, I don't want to see him in pain, and I will suffer for their sakes. And that's the greatest form of love. That's what Jesus says. Greater love has no man than this, that he lays down his life 
for his friends. And there you see Judah with the ultimate virtue, love, and he's got it in spades now. You know, remember Judah's been through quite a lot. He's lost two sons. He is he's lived with the guilt of this for 20 years. He has seen his dad a mess and in shambles. He's he's seen a lot and it has softened him. It's made him a noble, virtuous man by the end of this story. And so when we get into the next chapter, you see, which I know this is such a poor part of <laughs> such a bad spot to put an end of a chapter but it's where the end of the chapter is. But next chapter, we get to see just how glorious this reunion is. And we pointed at this last week. But this is exactly what needed to happen for every single character in the story. And you think, you know, you read through the story and it is one thing after another where it's just injustice, tragedy, deception, mess, hardship, things that would crush people. And yet, you see so clearly how God weaves it together. This is exactly what Jacob needed to be able to break through his grief. And by the way, like this is something else that I heard from a commentator, which I loved. You know, Jacob has been spending how many years praying through and working through the grief of Joseph? You know, 20 years. He's been without his his favorite son that he doted over, that he found all of his joy in and everything else. He's, He's been working through that grief. And then the brothers come home and say, we need Benjamin. We need to take Benjamin back to Egypt. And you got to be thinking like, at that point, Jacob is thinking, no, they can't have him. They can't have him. They can't have him. Lord, please stop this famine. Stop this famine. Stop this famine. And he's praying against famine. And you know what the weird, bizarre, sovereign beauty of God is? God doesn't answer that prayer. And if you're Jacob in the middle of the famine and you're thinking, send the rain, send the rain, oh my goodness, please stop this famine, it's putting Benjamin at risk, and God doesn't answer, you, if, you're, if you're Jacob, you might be shaking your fist at God like, why are you not stopping the famine when the greater answer that he's about to discover in the next chapter is the reason why God didn't stop the famine is because Jacob's about to get Joseph back. And had the famine stopped, he doesn't. And so there's a lot of times where God doesn't give us our desired answer to prayer because he's got something so much more beautiful that we couldn't even conceive of being true in store for us if we would just trust him. And so Jacob is is learning that lesson that he can trust God through the hard things. The brothers are being softened. Joseph, we're going to see, has been thoroughly humbled from where he began. He's become the ruler that Egypt needed. He is softened toward his brothers. Benjamin has this, you know, you just imagine Benjamin even on the long trek from Canaan to Egypt, finally getting to spend some time with his brothers. And you wonder how their relationship improves by the time they get there. Like all of these dysfunctional elements of the story are redeemed through the craziness of the story. And so what, the, what does that do for me? Why, why is that an encouragement to me? Because I look at a world, I look at circumstances, I look at my life where there's a lot of stuff where I'm like, nope, God, you did that one wrong. Mm. You did that one wrong. Our world's going to hell in a handbasket. I don't like the famine. This is going on in my life. None of this makes sense. And you look at a story like this where if there ever was someone who could say none of this makes sense, <laughs> you know, it's, it's Jacob and Joseph. Yeah. And yet on the backside of this, they wouldn't have traded any of it mm. because God's not done with his masterpiece yet. And so in the middle of the chaos, you can say God's not done with his masterpiece yet. 
And that's a comfort. I think that's a good ender. You know, and, and at the end of the day, when you look at this story, all of the similarities between Joseph and Jesus, they, they just jump off the page at you. The father's favored son, falsely accused, thrown into a pit, you know, stripped of his robe, chained and shackled and sent down to the land of death. He's put in between two prisoners. One is redeemed. One is is not. He's exalted out of the pit to the right hand of Pharaoh where he's going to use that authority to save the world with life-giving bread. And you're looking at Joseph and his whole story is kind of pointing you to the pattern that you see in Jesus. And yet through his wisdom, what does he do? Is he takes people with that wisdom and that authority and he begins to work in the lives of those that betrayed him and those who did wickedness to him and those who, who you would think he would want judged and, and thrown away. And yet through Joseph's patience, kindness, and grace and wisdom toward his brothers, what happens? They start having lives that look a lot more like Jesus. And so that's the beauty of the story is it doesn't just end with Joseph being a suffering servant like he he suffers with a purpose, trusting in the sovereignty of God to where he not only delivers the entire world or the entire region, but he takes those that betrayed him, who did evil to him, and he begins to make them more, you know, obviously the spirit, but his actions are ushering them into a season where they become more like Christ, and they will be the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel. So all of this wickedness that we've been plowing through in the book of Genesis ends with these brothers that are becoming more in the image of Christ, and God's like, that's going to be my people. That's going to be a people. Those, those people who struggle and mess up and are goofy and, and making wrong decisions at every turn, and yet they trust in the sovereignty of God, and they're ultimately redeemed, those are my people. It's beautiful. It is, and it's, it's hopeful. And it makes me want to be more charitable toward other people because I can relate to these guys. Mm. And God was never done with them, and he's not done with me. And so we will pick up next week when we get this kind of jubilant celebration of this family coming back together, and we get to see some pretty awesome stuff uh, that happens in this family to kind of tie a bow on the, the family of Abraham four generations later um, where God has done a marvelous act of redemption. So we hope that you will join us next week as we get into the next chapter of Genesis. Um, this has just been really fun. So I hope you join us. God bless. Have a great week. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash out of water.